Welcome to Global Questions by YDS, the podcast breaking down global politics for young people who want to know more. This is The Wrap-Up. Hello, I'm Joshua. And I'm Hugh. For season three, we'll be your wrap-up hosts. Jen and Emma will continue to host in-depth interviews, but Josh and I will be here to bring you your dose of international news every fortnight. Now, you probably heard the two of us in our recent Christmas specials, and if you haven't listened to them, definitely check them out. But a bit about us, I'm the audio editor for Global Questions and outside of YDS, work as a lawyer, having previously studied sort of a mixture of things, bit of journalism, bit of law, bit of human rights. And I'm the outreach and research officer at Global Questions. Uh, And when I'm not doing that, I'm studying a Bachelor of Security Studies at Macquarie University. Fantastic. Let's get into our news stories. The European Union wants the ordered and pre-financed doses to be delivered as soon as possible. And we want our contract to be fully fulfilled. So, Hugh, tell me, who did we just hear there? That was the voice of European Health Commissioner Stella Kyriakides, who is currently considering forcing AstraZeneca and other vaccine producers operating in the EU to formally notify European authorities whenever COVID-19 vaccines are exported out of the bloc. Now, this comes after significant delays in vaccine delivery to European nations, with all 27 EU member states falling behind on their vaccine rollouts. In August of last year, the EU signed a contract with pharmaceutical manufacturer AstraZeneca to provide 300 million doses to the bloc, with the option of adding an additional 100 million if necessary. That instantly made the EU AstraZeneca's biggest customer, but it also created big expectations with vaccine producers across the world facing severe supply and distribution problems, AstraZeneca notified the European Commission that it would have to cut vaccine delivery by up to 60% to the EU. That's pretty substantial, given that the EU is in a pretty bad place with the virus anyway. Absolutely. And AstraZeneca is blaming supply problems, which could include difficulties in getting vital vaccine components from European manufacturers such as Novoset, But the European Commission actually suspects that other AstraZeneca customers have secured access to existing doses that were meant for the EU. The European Commission has been hesitant to blame specific nations, uh, but some fingers are beginning to point to the UK. Now, at this stage, the UK has managed to begin vaccinating about 10% of its population, while the EU as a whole has only managed to get about 2%. Does that mean the UK government secured access to doses that were meant for the EU? We don't know that yet. AstraZeneca might be based in the UK, but the company blames supply issues and the British government also approved the vaccine earlier than the EU did. So effectively, the EU thinks the British government's stolen their doses. That's right. And given that they paid several billion euros for those doses, uh, they're quite upset about it. Now, the current proposal is to force firms such as AstraZeneca to notify the EU whenever vaccine doses are exported out of the bloc. But important committee members in Brussels so that it could even be extended to include a full ban on vaccine exports out of the EU. So it's definitely something to keep an eye on going forward. So what impact is this dispute going to have on the global vaccine rollout overall, do you think? That's a good question. A lot of commentators have already pointed out that with the global pharmaceutical industry already being so heavily concentrated in just a few developed countries, it's already going to be very difficult to get desperately needed vaccines to the developing world. Um, But I don't think it bodes well when we consider just how close the EU and the UK are to be having this kind of dispute. They might be somewhat divided by Brexit, 
But ultimately, you know, in an economic, political and geographic sense, they're still very close. AstraZeneca itself might be based in the UK, but it is a joint British-Swedish firm with facilities and business partners across both the EU and the UK. So if despite all of that, the two parties are getting to the point where one side is considering an export ban on COVID vaccines, I think that bodes quite poorly for the developing world, which is arguably both the most desperate and the least able to secure vaccines. Given that AstraZeneca has promised more than 2 billion vaccines across the world, uh, London and Brussels are really going to have to find a way to share without setting a terrible precedent. Yeah, you'd think that if the UK and the EU can't sort out the issues, then what hope does the rest of the world have? Right, it's not a good start. So, Hugh, what you're hearing there are the sounds of tens of thousands of farmers protesting in New Delhi on January 26, so just a few days ago. Those protests were initially supposed to be peaceful, but as you can hear from that audio, clearly that didn't happen. So they turned violent, essentially, when the farmers used their tractors to demolish police blockades, the police returned fire with tear gas, protesters couldn't be stopped, and they ended up storming the iconic 400-year-old Red Fort in Delhi. And overall, they were pretty disturbing scenes. You might, in fact, have seen some clips on the news. I know I saw a few here and there. Yeah, I have. Something that I've sort of heard of, but I haven't really got an understanding of what's going on, so I'd love to know more. Yeah, sure. Well, the aftermath of the protests were pretty significant. So roughly around 200 protesters were detained, one person died, and 300 police officers were injured. And all of this is because of some new agricultural laws that were passed in June 2020. And to get a sense of the importance of agriculture in India, more than 60% of India's 1.3 billion people depend on farming for their livelihood. Wow. So these new laws that the farmers are protesting about will affect a lot of India's population. And what these laws do is they change the way that farming produce is sold. So previously, products were sold through a heavily regulated system. I won't get into all the complexities of Indian (laughs) law, but effectively the government set the prices for products and that ensured that farmers weren't ripped off. For the most part, it looks like the system worked, but life as a farmer in India is still really, really tough. So 52% of all farming households are in debt and 20,000 farmers died by suicide in 2020. Wow. So although the old system definitely didn't protect farmers fully, many of those farmers saw it as better than nothing. But then in June 2020, the national government abolished that system of protection. Wow. So if the system was protecting farmers, why would the government want to abolish that? The national government says that the new laws will allow for a free market. So people will be able to set whatever prices they want And ultimately, it will lead to economic growth. But the farmers, who have very little bargaining power, say that big corporations will take advantage of them and give them bad deals, which, when so many are already in debt, is clearly quite troubling. But the government didn't listen to those concerns and passed the laws. And in response, tens of thousands of farmers marched on New Delhi in November last year and set up camp 
around the city. And here's the amazing part. They bought rations for up to six months and tents to live in too. So New Delhi is effectively surrounded by multiple tent cities that have been there for months and could be there for a long time to come because the farmers have said that they're not leaving until these new laws are repealed. It sounds like they're hunkering down for a fight and it sounds like New Delhi has a big political liability on its hands. So what does this all mean for India's Prime Minister? Well, it's an interesting question, this one, because farmers make up Prime Minister Narendra Modi's political base. So alienating them could prove really, really costly for him. And in fact, Modi has already lost the support of two parties that form his governing coalition. And given the protests come at a time when India's economy is struggling, religious tensions are really high, and the pandemic is causing a lot of pain, it could prove really decisive for Modi's political future and the future of India overall. Absolutely. And it seems like a lot of countries are facing multiple crises. And I'm sort of surprised that Modi thought now's the time to start another one. But uh, my hope is that they will resolve that soon. Yeah, I reckon. Will Israel attack Iran? Its military says it's preparing plans and the Israeli government is urging the new U.S. administration not to rejoin the 2015 Iran nuclear deal. Appearing before national television last week, Israeli Lieutenant General Aviv Kochavi announced that Israel's military is preparing new plans for a conflict with Iran. Shalom lekulchem, erev tov, erev tov lechamos, erev tov lefrank. This comes as the election of President Biden to the White House shakes the Middle Eastern balance of power. Uh, seeking to distance himself from his predecessor, who pursued a policy of maximum pressure against Iran. President Biden is actually looking to return the United States to the much-discussed Iran nuclear deal. And that's cause for concern in Israel, which has long opposed the deal. Israel sees any engagement with Iran by the international community as pandering to a hostile power. And it believes that the deal signed by President Obama in 2015 only emboldened Iran to pursue nuclear weapons in the long term. Iran, on the other hand, well, it's said that the Biden administration only has a limited window of time to return to the deal before Iran proceeds with and steps up its nuclearization efforts. So the Iran deal, or JCPOA as it's also known, uh, lifted international sanctions on Iran in return for Iran ceasing its development of nuclear weapons and opening up to international inspectors. President Trump, or former President Trump, was not a fan of that one, was he? No, he, he uh, chastised it a lot uh, before he was president, and one of the first things he did as president was actually withdraw from the deal. I also withdrew the United States from the horrible Iran nuclear deal. And since doing that, Iran has, of course, proceeded with its nuclearization plans, and it's been enriching uranium to nuclear weapons standards. Now, a report from the International Atomic Energy Agency did acknowledge that Iran appears to be proceeding at a deliberately slow pace, and that's to give time for the international community to rebuild the deal, but it is nonetheless on the path to a nuclear bomb. And Israel knows that pre-2015 sanctions on Iran were doing significant damage to the Iranian economy, and it knows that there is only a limited window of time for the nuclear deal to be rebuilt. So Israel might try to inflame tensions in the region, which would force the Biden administration to take a harder stance on Iran, which would in turn probably make it a lot harder for Washington to re-enter the nuclear deal. Uh, We know that the US is already hesitant about the deal, While the new U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, is eager to join, 
He recently acknowledged that Iran would have to yet again undo its nuclear program before the US could cut them a deal. And with trust being so low between Washington and Tehran after the Trump presidency, it's going to be difficult for both sides to find the goodwill to work together. If Iran is already struggling to convince the US to re-enter the deal, how likely do you think it is that Israel is going to succeed in forcing the US to confront Iran? Well, I think given the extent to which the US is already hesitant about re-entering the deal, uh, Israel has fairly high odds of at least making the situation more complicated for the Biden administration. And they might do that through lobbying the US government or uh, US Congress people, or also through unilaterally escalating tensions. Uh, but it is important to remember that President Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu don't actually have a perfect history together. Biden was vice president at a time of poor US-Israel relations, which was partly a result of the Obama administration's decision to pursue the nuclear deal. Uh, And so it is possible that animosity between the two leaders might actually scuttle Israeli attempts to influence the United States uh, at a political level. But Israel is always free to unilaterally provoke Iran with airstrikes or targeted assassinations, which it has been doing for the last few years. That doesn't sound great. So, Hugh, tell me, are we looking at World War Three here? It's grim. It's a grim subject. It's good to remember that no one actually wants it to get to that point. But, of course, uh, the tensions are so high that that is something that is actually a serious possibility at all times, and so it requires quite a bit of attention. Uh, for its part, if it wanted to, Israel could try and push the envelope by forcing a small regional conflict without creating an all-out conflict. Um, but a general increase in tension between the US and Iran could also see small conflicts intensify in Iraq, Yemen, and Syria. Um, Of course, there is a significant risk of conflict breaking out, but as I said, Tehran and Washington really don't want that to happen. Uh, But I think the most pressing concern is the genuine risk that the deal might fail and Iran might actually proceed with nuclearization. Uh, The prospect of a fully nuclear (laughs) Iran probably deserves an episode of its own, Uh, But to give you a brief summary, such a situation would probably lead to, again, a significant escalation in Israeli efforts to contain Iran. Iran would have a much freer hand uh, to pursue its military activities across the Middle East. And it's also quite likely that countries such as Egypt, Saudi Arabia and Turkey would also want to start pursuing nuclear weapons in order to contain Iran. Now, it sounds crazy, but that could actually lead to the full nuclearization of what is arguably the world's least stable region. Um, So it is very important that all parties involved do their best to get the deal on track. Pressure is on newly minted President Biden then. Oh, it's it's a dive into the deep end, that's for sure. Hugh, we're going to go to South America now. The person you just heard in that clip is 91-year-old Chief Rayoni Metakiri, and he's an Indigenous leader in Brazil. And what he's just done is he's asked the International Criminal Court to investigate Brazil's President Jair Bolsonaro for ecocide and crimes against humanity. That is a big move. Why has he done that? Well, it's effectively because of Bolsonaro's environmental policies. So when Bolsonaro became president, he rolled back a lot of laws protecting the Amazon and effectively allowed mining, oil extraction and farming to occur in the rainforest. And as a result, deforestation has soared nearly 50%. And as people move in and as they demolish huge parts of the rainforest, 
they're frequently invading Indigenous territory. And just last year, 18 people were murdered. Wow. So Chief Metakiri has asked The Hague to investigate Bolsonaro and his government for crimes against humanity, including murder, the forced transfer of Indigenous residents, and mass destruction of the environment. And on that last point, they've added ecocide to the list, which is a bit of an uncommon charge. But what it effectively means is that the person has seriously harmed the environment and people. That's a big allegation on the chief's part, but it is also probably new legal ground for the international community. So is it likely that Bolsonaro will face prosecution? Chief Medicare's complaint doesn't actually force the court to formally charge Bolsonaro. It only requires it to investigate him. So whether or not that investigation leads to charges and then those charges lead to a conviction isn't certain. So there's a long, long way to go yet. But either way, as you sort of hinted at, Hugh, I think it's a pretty important development. First of all, because the International Criminal Court hasn't really focused on ecocide before, but also because of the environmental implications. Scientists have warned that the Amazon is about to enter an irreversible decline. If it does that, it could destroy global hopes of addressing climate change. Absolutely. And of course, keeping an eye on internationalization of climate change is a big one going forward. It is. It definitely is. And I think Global Questions will be exploring that space a bit more in the future. So definitely stay tuned. Well, that's all for this wrap up. Thanks for listening. Make sure you check out next week's in-depth episode where Jen will be interviewing an Uyghur woman about the crackdown in Xinjiang. And of course, follow YDS on our social media pages too. We'll see you in a fortnight. Bye. Bye.